Father, we pray this morning that that would be the cry of our hearts, that not my will, but yours be done, that we would continually and constantly look towards you as the one who leads us and guides us in all things. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look at the the ending of Luke chapter 2. We're going to wrap up this intro and prologue that Luke has led us on the last several weeks. Um, let's not forget, though, that through the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, Luke is setting up an epic retelling of Jesus's life and ministry. His purpose in these opening cha- chapters is to create in us a sense of awe and wonder at the person and the work of Jesus. Just think of all that he's covered so far in these two, well, they're not short chapters, but these two chapters, right? The amazing announcement of both John and Jesus, John in the sanctuary and Jesus to Mary about the virgin birth. Multiple prophecies that have been spoken about Jesus through either Elizabeth or Zechariah or Simeon or even Anna. I almost said Anna because we watched too much Frozen. Uh, The miraculous virgin birth of Jesus in Jerusalem. All of this is leading us up to the words and the work of Jesus that Luke highlights the rest of the book. But the thing is, here in the opening chapters, we still need to see Jesus grow up. We see Jesus the infant, but he still needs to become Jesus the the man, who the prophet, the teacher. And so Luke is gearing us up towards that. Remember, he's, he's born a baby. He doesn't descend from heaven fully grown. He, he has to live a life of a child and as a toddler and as a preteen and grow into the adult that will eventually sacrifice himself for our sins. In fact, in this morning's text, it, what we're going to look at is it's bookended by phrases about Jesus growing up. And one of the reasons that Luke includes this in his gospel is so that we don't lose the fact that Jesus was both truly God and truly man that he was fully God and fully man. And Luke wants us to see that he has to grow up, that Jesus has to come into himself as the one who would sacrifice himself. Remember, Luke has told us the purpose for writing his gospel is this, so that you may, in in verse 4 of chapter 1, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So Luke doesn't just want to tell us these things. He wants to show us these things. So if you're a reader, you know that good writing helps us to be shown things rather than just be told things. And so he includes this extended birth narrative. And then we get a little glimpse of Jesus as a preteen to help us truly see Jesus's divine origins and his earthly life. Luke's retelling of Jesus's life is a little bit different in another way. Remember, One of his sources for Jesus' life was Mary herself, Jesus' mother. So she relays stories about him, about Jesus, to Luke, and uh, Luke chooses to include those in this this gospel for biological or biographical and theological reasons. I'm talking about this story at the end of Luke 2 where Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. He's missing from Joseph and Mary's care for a few days. And it's the only time we see Jesus before he becomes an adult and after he's an infant. And there's a story from my childhood, which is kind of a a sort of lore of some sorts in the circles that I swim in, my family. Um, One time I got super mad at my parents. I was so mad at them. I was about, I don't know, I would say nine, ten years old. 
And I got so mad that I decided I was going to run away. I was going to run away. I wanted to leave and never come back. So I stormed out of the house and I left. Except I didn't go very far. Um, but I decided where I decided to hide was a place that my parents never chose to look. They didn't think that I would be there. They actually thought that I left the house and I was walking around the neighborhood. But where I actually ended up sitting was in our backyard on the air conditioner. I was just sitting in our backyard on the air conditioner. The house was constructed in such a way that in order to get to the backyard, you had to go down some stairs and the air conditioner was under those stairs. So unless you came out into the backyard or went down the stairs to actually look, you would not have seen me. Like you could have looked out the the windows in the backyard and not seen me. And so I was hiding on this air conditioner from my parents. I could hear my parents upstairs in the house and even outside the house panicking because they're not able to find me. In fact, I, I recall them talking about calling the police and, and sending out a search. I remember my dad getting in his car and driving around the neighborhood to look for me. And after about 30 minutes, after I had calmed down, I went back into the house, found my mom, and got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and got in a lot of trouble. I'm not sure that I actually sat down for weeks after that event, right? And so um, the situation was that I ran away from my parents, right? Uh, and I was separated from them, and there was panic in that. Now, the situation with Mary, Jesus, and Joseph is a little bit different than mine because Jesus wasn't being a rebellious um, kid, right? He wasn't throwing a fit. He wasn't mad at his parents. Rather, he was well aware of his purpose and his calling even at the age of 12. And so Jesus, what we're going to look at is, is he's going to stay behind in Jerusalem after his parents come and he comes for the Passover fest festival. But I can, I can only, as, as a father now, I can only imagine what um, Jesus or Joseph and Mary felt. I can only imagine the panic that sets in when they can't find their son. Right, And so if you've ever lost a kid in a grocery store or in a shopping mall or at an amusement park, I'm sure that you could also relate to Mary and Joseph in this story um, this morning. So that's what's happening. That's the story that we're going to look at primarily is Jesus in Jerusalem and his parents looking for him. Um, but what we're going to open with is the, this, um, the phrases in verses 39 and 40, just so I can show you that Jesus is growing up even from an infant. So in verse 39, it says this, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their town of Nazareth. Verse 40, the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was upon him. This, this verse obviously piggybacks on what we looked at last week, right, where Jesus was born and he was eight days old and they went to have the, um, the circumcision and then the parents, uh, Mary had to go get purified in the temple as well. So it's piggybacking on that, but this concludes the actual birth narrative, the, the, the child, the babyhood, the infancy of Jesus. After his circumcision and the songs that have been sung by Simeon and by Anna, Luke tells us that Jesus and his family go back to Nazareth. They return to life, and life is pretty normal. Joseph went back to working. Mary went back to caring for her son. They cooked, and they cleaned, and they lived a rather normal life. Jesus would start attending the synagogue as he gets older. He would start learning and studying the Jewish scriptures. But for all intents and purposes, life is normal for Jesus at this time. In fact, I love the realism that's found in verse 40, right? Jesus had to grow up. The boy grew up. And sometimes we forget about that, that Jesus had to grow up. He had to grow into what his calling would be. He was filled with the wisdom and covered by God's grace. Though he progressed through the normal stages of childhood, we do know that he was distinct 
indifferent. In fact, Luz tells us something similar about John in John chapter one, verse 80, when he says the child grew up, became strong in spirit. And when he was in, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. But I don't know if you can notice from just a cursory reading, but Luke uses only two identifiers to, to talk about John, right? He grew up and became strong in spirit. But with Jesus here in uh, Luke 2.40, we see that there are four identifiers. And he says that this, the boy grew up, he became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and God's grace was upon him. So there's a fourfold. This is almost saying that, that Jesus is two times better than John, but it's actually saying a little bit more than that. This is a subtle way that Luke points out that Jesus is greater than John. Luke wants us to know that John was awesome, but Jesus is awesomer, right? If that's a word, right? That Jesus is awesomer. And let us never forget that. No matter how awesome someone or something may be, Jesus is always better. Jesus is always better than anything we can imagine. Though John was cool, and awesome, and his hand, the hand of God was upon him. Jesus was all the more better. And so we circle back to, to Jesus growing and becoming a, a young man at this, in this morning's text as well. But we're going we're gonna to stop for just a second, look at verse 41 and 42 before we talk about Jesus. Because we need to know why Jesus and his family were in Jerusalem. And verse 41 says this, Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. Here, one of the things we see is that Mary and Joseph, throughout their entire life, so so we know from the time that Mary was told that she was going to conceive a child until now, that they have been completely devoted to God's plan. They were extremely devoted to God and who he is. They were pious or religious individuals who obeyed the law. They did what God instructed. Whether it was the circumcision of Jesus on the eighth day or the offering of purification on the 40th day after his birth, they are now traveling for Passover. The beliefs they held were tightly held and not just abstract ideas, but devoted to what the Lord had expected of them. We read here that every year Mary, Joseph, and Jesus would make the journey to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Now, Passover was the most important and still is the most important feast in the Jewish calendar. It is the pinnacle feast. It's, it's more than just Sunday lunch, right? This is a festival. This is a celebration of God's providence and God's salvation for the Jewish people. Now, it's one of the three main feasts where the Jewish people would make a pilgrimage from their hometowns into Jerusalem. And, and the males... The male specifically, the Jewish men were required to attend in Jerusalem, the Passover feast. This was a commandment found in the Old Testament. And because of their devotion, we see that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went there every year. Now, because we aren't Jewish, I don't think, no, none of y'all are Jewish, and I'm not Jewish either. We don't celebrate Passover. So I want to remind you why this feast is so important to the Jewish people. The Passover is what signals God's salvation of the Jewish people from Egypt. Prior to Passover, God commanded Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, right, that he needs to free God's people from slavery. And Pharaoh refused to set them free. So God sent on Pharaoh and Egypt 10 different plagues, right? There were frogs and there were gnats and there was bloody water and there was darkness in the sky. And it was a horrible time. There were these 10 plagues. And on the 10th and final plague, was God was going to take the life of every 
firstborn thing, whether it was a cattle or a lamb or any other beast of the field, and even the firstborn son. This included every child. No child was safe, even the Israelite children, except God made a provision for his people. God made a provision for the followers of him. He told them that if they would go and sacrifice a lamb and they would paint on the, on the doorway to their house, um, on the top of the doorway and on the sides of the doorway the, with the blood, that he would pass over them and their children would be saved from death. So those who listened and obeyed the Lord's instruction were saved from this death. They would be passed over. That's why it's called Passover. Those who wouldn't, their firstborn son would die. And so the night came when this was going to happen, and those who were devoted to the Lord, those who listened to the Lord, those who obeyed the Lord, had the blood painted on their doorways, and the angel of death, the angel of the Lord, came through, and it killed every firstborn son that did not have that mark on its doorway. And then after that, even Pharaoh's son, his firstborn son, died, and he, he told Moses to go ahead and get out. So this was the, the time when Moses was able to flee from Egypt and enter into the wilderness. Now, there's more that happens after that, but this is the, the pinnacle. When, when the Israelites are walking around in the, or in the wilderness, God tells them, God instructs them as he's giving uh, Moses the law. He says, this is a day you do not forget. This is a day that you celebrate every year. This is a day that you have to come and you need to worship me because of what I've done for you. So Pharaoh's people were let go and this this feast was celebrated every year. Now, we get here a glimpse of this that has happened since the time of Moses. So for 1,200 years or so, the Passover had been celebrated up to Jesus. They were remembering God's provision. They were remembering God's deliverance from Pharaoh. And here we get a glimpse of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus going to celebrate the same feast of deliverance, the same feast of celebration, the same feast of salvation that God provided in Egypt. And honestly, the only one in the family that had to make the trip, that had to make the pilgrimage, was Joseph. It was, remember, it's only the adult males who have to go and make this journey to celebrate this Passover in Jerusalem. But we're, we're told that every year, all of them went. And for this family, this wasn't going to be an easy trip. The trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem was about 80 miles. And I don't know, you know, Jesus 12, but for those 12 years, could you imagine traveling 80 miles with an infant and then with a toddler and now with a young man, right? And this would be a four, three to four day journey on foot. So it wasn't a short trip. It's not just hop in the car and go to Houston, right? This is a, a walk that's going to take three to four days to make the journey. And not only are they making this journey in three to four days, but guess what? Everybody in the surrounding area knows that all these Jewish people are going through. So what do you also have to watch out for? Robbers and bandits and people who want to cause harm to those who are traveling. But this whole family decides every year to make this journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Every single year. As an infant, as a toddler, as a child, Jesus made this trip. None of those trips were recorded, but this one was. This trip is different. This trip took place when Jesus was 12 years old. This is Jesus' last pilgrimage to celebrate Passover as a child before he crossed over into adulthood. The Jewish tradition then and even now is that a child is only a child until he or she turns 13 years old. So at 13 years old, they are now an adult. 
They are responsible for the law. They are responsible for their own adherence to what the Lord had commanded. So this is the last time that Jesus is, uh, for all intents and purposes, under the umbrella of Joseph's law keeping. And now Jesus is going to be responsible for keeping the law. So at 13 years old, you're an adult and you're responsible for adhering to the law. You don't get this extended adolescence. You don't get to 18. You don't get to 25. You don't get to 34, right? At 13 years old, you're an adult. And this is what we see, that Jesus is on this precipice of adulthood, that he is making this journey for the last time as an observer. And next time he goes, he's going to be a full participant in the Passover ritual. Jesus is going to watch his father choose a lamb, a spotless lamb that is ready to be sacrificed. He's going to take that one-year-old lamb, and he's going to go to the temple court, and he's going to watch his dad grab the head of that Passover lamb and take a knife and slice its throat. And then the priest is going to come by with a chalice, and he's going to gather up some of that blood. He's going to go sprinkle it on the altar. And Jesus is going to watch this. He's going to watch the slaughter of this lamb at this Passover feast. And he's starting to realize that there's something happening here, that this picture of this Passover is something that is just a a foreshadowing of something greater that's going to happen. That shedding of the blood of the lamb is just a foreshadow of what Jesus is going to ultimately do when he goes to the cross and he sheds his blood for humanity, covering the sins of humanity. And then later that evening after they sacrifice that that lamb, they're going to roast it and they're going to eat it and they're going to recall and everything that the story of Exodus tells them. They're going to remember God's deliverance out of Egypt. They're going to remember God's provision while they were in the wilderness. They're going to remember all of this. And this is exercise that's meant to remind them of the deliverance that God provided over 1,200 years ago in Egypt. Now, little did the rest of the observers know that the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world was going to be present that day, that he was going to be in the temple watching the sacrifice. And though Passover was extremely important in the history of redemption to the Jewish people, it's not even the point that Luke wants to make here. He wants us to see that they were there for Passover, but the point that he wants us to really see is that Jesus, on the brink of adulthood, was finally understanding and comprehending his mission. He was finally getting to see the full picture of why he was sent to begin with. So in verse 43, we read this. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began to look for him among their relatives. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search him out, search for him. So Jesus is missing. It's different than, I mean, losing your kids, kind of a big deal, right? But losing the son of God, (laughs) that's a really big deal, isn't it? (laughs) But after a week-long ceremony, because Passover was about a week long, it was time for the family to pack up and move their way back home. Right? So we also learned that they traveled here with a group of people, right? This group of people would probably be either family members or some friends of the area. They were kind of caravanning back home again to add extra protection against robbers and those who had nefarious motives, right? Also to have a company. I mean, some of these people might have been traveling with their kids too. And so the more people you have, the more eyes you have to watch kids. But apparently Jesus got overlooked, right? This was a long trip, they went about a day's journey. A day's journey would have been about 20 to 25 miles, depending on how fast they were walking. So they got pretty, pretty good amount of way in, and then they realized Jesus isn't around. 
So the reason why Mary and Joseph didn't immediately notice is, again, they would have assumed that he was going to be with somebody else. They would have just assumed he was maybe with a cousin or he was with a friend. Or I mean, we've done this before, right? We've gone out with other friends and family members and, and just assumed that our kids were with them. This, this is what Mary and Joseph would have done. And then they start looking for him that night, and they're like, holy smokes, where is this guy? Where is this kid? So they were about 20 miles away, 25 miles away from Jerusalem, and so they had to go back. He was missing. The son that God had promised them wasn't with them. Could you imagine just for a second how much of a a failure you might have felt as Mary or Joseph at that moment that you couldn't find your son, the son that had been promised, this, this son that these prophecies have been spoken over, and here you are, you can't find him. Like sometimes my kids go outside and I don't know it, and I start freaking out, right? But here, he's, he's all the way back in Jerusalem. 20 miles away. It's going to take us another day to get there. And not only that, but I didn't tell you this, when this Passover festival would happen, there would be an influx of about 200 to 250,000 other people going into Jerusalem for this event. So think about it. Another quarter of a million people are there as you're trying to find your son. And some of them are leaving at the same time. So there's a lot of confusion, a lot of chaos. And so you go back to the Mary and Joseph go back to Jerusalem looking for their son. Now, there's been a lot of talk on whether Jesus stayed behind intentionally or not. Again, he's 12 years old. It could have been that he just got caught up in the moment, right? That he just wanted to be there and that he went to the temple and he wasn't even thinking about his parents. He was off on his own doing his own little thing. He, maybe he didn't have any social awareness at this point that his parents were leaving. I mean, there was a big group and maybe they was like, I, I can make one last trip to the temple before they leave. And then he just stays there. But whatever reason that Jesus has for staying behind, I can tell you that he didn't intentionally stress out his parents. Like his intention was not to worry Joseph and Mary. He was, again, growing in knowledge of what the father had sent him to do. He was growing in the knowledge of what it meant to be fully human and fully divine. So he got caught up in the events and the rituals and and growing in that knowledge and just was left behind. And once Mary and Joseph noticed that they didn't have Jesus, that he wasn't around. They made their way back to Jerusalem because they needed to find this boy. They needed to find Jesus. In verse 46, we read, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he had said to them. So Mary and Joseph noticed that Jesus had gone and it takes them three days to find him. So they were gone for a day. They came, they took them another day to get back. That's two days. And they probably spent that third day searching for him. But three days, that's a long time. Right, And when they found him, he was in the temple, and he was listening to the teachers and asking them questions. Jesus was interacting with the religious leaders of the time. He wanted to hear, and he wanted to understand what they knew, what they thought. Eventually, in the years to come, they would be the ones asking him questions rather than him asking them questions. But right now, he's asking questions. He's seeking out knowledge. Now, I find this interesting because I came across this quote earlier this this last week, I guess it was, and it says this. To be Jewish is to ask questions. To be Jewish is to ask questions. Something that is grained in the teachings of Judaism, even at Jesus' time, was to ask questions. 
questions for clarity, questions for understanding. And I think this is something that we as a church and as Christians miss in our devotion to God. We have lost the art of asking questions. Many of us see question asking as in the church as either taboo or even undermining God. But the reality is, is that we can never ask too many questions about an infinite God. And part of growing in our understanding of who God is means that we need to ask a lot of questions, because how are you going to learn if you don't ask questions? And we need to get better at asking questions, at seeking truth. If God is the source of all truth, and we believe he is, then he can stand up to any kind of question that you may have. He can stand up to the questions that you have. And we see that this, this young Jesus is asking these questions. He's, he's wanting to understand. He wants to listen to the answers. So he asks questions. But not only that, but he responds to people. He responds to questions that are asked to him, to thoughts that are being thrown out. Now, this is the only time in the gospel that Jesus takes instruction from other teachers. But it's still a good model of what it looks like to be a good learner. To be a good learner means that you ask good questions. We need to listen and we need to ask questions. And this is one of the things that I love about being a pastor is when people come up to me and ask questions about things that they didn't understand, because I know some stuff, but I don't know everything. But when you ask questions and I say, I don't know, then that gives me an opportunity to go back and learn and grow too, right? We should always be growing in our faith. There is not enough. We we don't know everything and there is more depth out there for us to understand. So we should model Jesus's behavior and we should ask questions We shouldn't just take everything in and just kind of go, oh, well, that makes sense. Well, ask questions about it. Figure it out. Extend your mind. Think about it. This is what Jesus is doing at 12 years old. And even at this young age, Jesus is understanding because, I mean, he is God. Astounds those who hear him, right? The word astound here in verse 47 can also be translated as amazed. So either amazed or astound, either one. And, but Luke uses this word, amazed or astound, throughout his gospel and in the book of Acts. It usually is attached to a miracle that has taken place. So Jesus raising the girl from the dead, the people were astounded. The disciples speaking in tongues in Acts, the people were astounded. Even Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, the people were astounded that Saul had been converted. So when Luke writes that Jesus' understanding astounded those who were around, This is no small feat. Jesus' questions and his answers stir within the hearers amazement. They are standing at all because nobody has ever spoken like this. Jesus' understanding was not typical or normal understanding for a 12-year-old. So Luke is trying to communicate that even before Jesus begins his ministry, there was something distinct and separate about him. Jesus' wisdom was not rifled by any of the boys his age and probably many of the teachers. And so the fact that, G- that Luke uses this word astounded or amazed, he is wanting us to know that there is some supernatural display of wisdom here. Jesus, even at 12, 12, year old, 12 years old, is different and distinct from everyone around him. Now, I've personally had questions and conversations with 12-year-olds, and typically they don't say wise things at all, <laughs> right? And so the fact that Jesus is here and he is He is engaging with these scholars who have spent their lives devoted to this text, devoted to learning about the Lord, and he is astounding those who are hearing him. That is divine. He is speaking truth. It astounds them. Meanwhile, 
He's in the temple. He's having a good time asking questions and, and, and getting answers and, and astounding people. And Mary and Joseph are, I, I don't know, I just imagine frantically searching for him, wholeheartedly searching for him, trying to find the child that they have been given care of. And after searching the city, they find Jesus in the temple. And what is he doing? He's sitting at the teacher's feet, asking questions and seeking answers. We must not overlook that the temple is a centerpiece of the Jewish people at that time and even before that. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus was there. What's most surprising, though, is the wisdom that's flowing from his lips. So they shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is there, but they should be surprised at how wise he is. The people had never heard anybody like Jesus. He was special. He was unique. He was wise beyond his years. Not only were the people there present astounded by Jesus, but so were Mary and Joseph. They were overwhelmed with the brilliance uh, in the promise that Jesus showed. They were also overwhelmed by the fact that he had been gone for three days. And so they see him, and though they're astounded by what's happening here, they, 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 they're probably a little angry. Right? There, there's probably some relief, there was some worry, but there's, the fact is that worry often gives way to anger. And so Mary asked Jesus in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I don't know about you, but I can feel the anxiety in her words there. I can feel the exasperation, the, the anger and the frustration and the, the worry that was there. I mean, she was, I can only imagine losing her mind looking for Jesus. And so she finds him and she confronts him. And, and when she confronts him, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus' response is amazing. What does he say in verse 49? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? These are the first words we get of Jesus in Luke. These are the first words we get as Jesus prior to his ministry in any of the gospels. At the ripe old age of 12, Jesus knew who he was and he knew who he belonged to. He knew about his missions, his mission. The center of Jesus's life, mission and purpose centered around glorifying God. And he had to be in his father's house. Jesus knew where he was supposed to be, even if his parents didn't. He is clearly aware that though Joseph is his earthly father and his caretaker, he has a greater father in the Lord. And he's in his house, the temple. Jesus knows that he is the son of God, even at this young age. We can tell by his response that there is no other place that Jesus belongs. He must be in his father's house. Don't you know it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Here we also see something that would have, that the hearers around would have thrown them back a little bit. We see that Jesus asserts God as his father. This doesn't mean a whole lot to us in this room because for most of our church going life, we have regularly called God our father. But for the Jewish people, God as father as a personal thing, never happened. It was never my father. It was always the father of the nation of Israel. God was the father of his people, but never the father of an individual. And throughout Jesus's life and ministry, he always referred to God as my father or our father. And here's a deep theological truth that we need to sink our teeth in. God is our father if we belong to Jesus. He's a father of humanity in that he created humanity, but he's a father of his people if we belong to Jesus. 
Because when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, then we become sons and daughters of God. Not all people are God's children. Only those who have been adopted into his family can call him my father. And it is through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection that it is possible for those who believe to become sons and daughters of the living God. So if you want God to be your father, then we must go through our brother, Jesus. He is the key to our relationship with God. It is through his life and his sacrifice that we can go from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. So what a blessing it is to belong to the household of God if you have trusted and placed your faith in Jesus. That's when God becomes my father, holy father, Lord God Almighty. There's something else I want us to see here when it comes to Jesus. Even before he entered into manhood, before he started to preach, teach, and heal, Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he needed to be about his father's business. He knew why he was sent. He was sent to this earth for one reason, and that is to bring glory to God. He was sent to the earth to show us the father, to reveal to us who the father is. I I love what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, 3, when he says, the son being Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Or even Colossians, when Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Here we see that Jesus, his mission and his purpose in life, yes, is to go to the cross, but ultimately is to glorify God through his obedience, through his sacrifice. And, and through that, we see that God's goal and God's purpose in all of his creation is the same thing, to glorify himself. Because when he is glorified, people are drawn to him. When he is glorified, that is the greatest good there is. So Jesus knew about himself. He knew what his mission was, that I must be about my father's business, that I must be in my father's house. He knew who he was, and he knew what his mission was, but his parents still didn't quite understand. His parents still were, were kind of wrapping their mind. Don't you know, Jesus, you were gone for three days, and we didn't know where you were. And Jesus is like, but I know where I was. I know what I'm doing. And this is still true. For us, even today, think about it. With all the miracles surrounding Jesus' birth, all the prophecies that had been spoken about this boy, all the things that Mary and Joseph had seen and experienced in relation to Jesus, they still fully didn't comprehend. They still did not know the fullness and the meaning of Jesus' life and ministry until the resurrection. They knew that he was a special child. They knew that he was set apart. And it, it, it wasn't until the greatest miracle right? That Mary would even truly understand how special her boy is. And it's not until we understand the resurrection and the gospel message on this side of the cross that we can truly understand how great Jesus is. We can know the facts and we can know the figures. We can know the stories. We can have the the Sunday school flannel graph, right? We We can see all the pictures and we can know about Jesus, but it's not until we understand the gospel It's not until we understand the resurrection. It's not until we understand our separatedness from God that we can truly see who Jesus is. That he is God in the flesh who sacrificed himself so that we as sinners could be forgiven and invited into the family of God. Jesus knew it. His parents didn't understand. And so for us, 
as we come to the clarity of understanding what Jesus's mission was, and we understand that it's the gospel through which we are saved, we need to go out and we need to proclaim that good news to other people who don't understand. They may see Jesus as a good teacher. They may see Jesus as a good moral leader. They may see Jesus as anything, but if they don't see Jesus as the one who was sent to glorify God, to sacrifice himself on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, then they're missing out on who Jesus actually is. They've got a good idea, but they have missed the whole point. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus understood this. Even though he grasped his calling and he grasped his mission, he was still only 12 years old. So he still had more growing up to do in his life before his ministry. In verse 51 and 52, we read this. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. Jesus continues to grow up. He's not ready for his mission. At the realization of Jesus' mission and calling, what does he do? He goes back home to live and to obey his parents. He knows that he's the son of God, sent to the earth to perform miracles, to heal the blind, to raise the dead, to mend the broken to sacrifice himself on the cross, to be the ultimate Passover lamb, to teach profound truths about his father and the scriptures. That's what he knows. But what does he do? He lays all that down to go and be obedient to his parents. He lays all that down and waits another 18 years or so to start his ministry. Why? Because he knew that he didn't have all the tools necessary yet to begin his mission that he needed to grow in wisdom, that he needed to grow in stature. I mean, nobody's going to listen to a 12-year-old. So he needed to grow in stature. He needed to grow in wisdom so that people would take him seriously. He needed to continue to be obedient to his parents and and to find favor with God and with people. His growth wasn't yet complete. The time had not come for him to step out to teach and to preach and to reach those who were far away from God. He wouldn't have been taken seriously by the world if he started at 12 years old. So Jesus grew in wisdom. Can you just imagine that? So that phrase, he grew in wisdom. He was already astounding people in the temple at 12 years old. And here he goes and he goes and he continues to grow in wisdom. How much more wiser can you get? I don't know. I'm still seeking it. So if you know, let me know. But he, he grew in wisdom and he grew in his relationship with God. He grew in his knowledge of how to communicate with others how to reach people where they were. He grew up. He prepared himself to go into the ministry. So we see that the Lord Jesus grew from an infant to a preteen to an adult. And one of the things we learned is that he never stopped growing. He never stopped learning. He never stopped growing in wisdom. And so what do we take from this? What, how do we use this story about Jesus to grow? First, I think we need to be challenged. We need to be challenged to grow in our own knowledge and wisdom about God and to mimic the way that Jesus grew. Too often we can become super complacent about our lives. We can be complacent with the things that we knew. Well, I learned a lot when I was in Sunday school, but I haven't learned much since, right? Or I learn a lot whenever I hear a preacher preach, but I don't actually grow on my own. No, we need to be asking questions. We need to be growing in our knowledge. I mean, if you read throughout the New, the New Testament, the letters in the New Testament, over and over again, the, the writers of the New Testament are telling us to grow in our knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why do they continue to tell us to grow in wisdom, to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ? Because the more that we grow, the more that we lean into the beauty of Jesus, the more that we love him more deeply, the more that we serve him more wholeheartedly. Becoming complacent and okay with what you know is not honoring God because the depths of his wisdom, the depths of the knowledge of him far exceed anything that we could ever hope, anything that we could ever dream. I mean, you could go from today until the day you die learning one new thing about God and you would never exhaust who he is. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we need to mimic Jesus. We need to mimic his understanding so so that we can look at him and go, man, he, he grew. He was the son of God. He was God in the flesh. And guess what? He was growing in his wisdom. He was growing in his knowledge. So maybe, maybe we shouldn't be arrogant enough to think that we don't have to do that. Maybe we should step into that reality too, that we can always grow in wisdom. We can always grow in knowledge of who God is. And I pray that if you live a life that honors him, that, that you would decide today to grow more knowledgeable about who he is, that you would decide today that this would, that your life with Christ would never become complacent, that you would learn and grow. And let me tell you, just as a 21st century nerd, right? That's who I am. As a 21st century nerd, I will tell you, there are resources that abound that can help you grow in your knowledge of Christ, right? Let's say that you, you struggle with reading. Let me tell you, you have a cell phone in your pocket that the, the Bible can be read to you. And if you don't know how to do that, I can show you how to do that. Right? If you if you want to go the devotional right and read devotions, there are tons of good devotions. Now there are bad some bad ones out there too. So if you want if you want clarity, let me know. And we can well, I can point you in the right direction. But there are tons of tools and resources for us. We have no reason. We have no excuse for our ignorance when it comes to the Lord. None. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to grow in your knowledge of who God is to not be complacent with what you know, because I tell you what, what you know today and what you could know next week, what you could know next year about how beautiful God is will only drive you into a deeper understanding and a greater love for who he is. I mean, you can ask some of the people who have been around for just a short amount of time who are into the word, who are learning more about God, how much greater he is today than he was yesterday. And I just, I just want to challenge you and encourage you to grow in your knowledge of the Lord. Now, this morning, one of the ways we're going to wrap up this morning is we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So if I could have Danny and Chuck come down here and help pass this out. We're going to wrap up the Lord's Supper this morning. And I, I pray that as we are passing it out, that we would reflect on our lives. That, that we pray that we don't get distracted by the things of this world, but rather we lean into the things of God that we are reminded through the Lord's Supper that we have received a great gift from the Lord. And that gift is salvation through Jesus's broken body and shed blood. Let's pray real quick before they pass it out. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for, for your word. Thank you that we can love and trust you, that we can see you, that, that you have made yourself known through the person and work of Jesus. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would be encouraged and challenged to imitate Christ's life. That even if we aren't 12 years old, maybe we're 60 years old, maybe we're 30 years old, that we would continue to grow in our understanding and knowledge of who you are so that we can see you more clearly and love you more dearly. And I pray this morning that as we take this Lord's Supper, we will be reminded of the fact that you shed your blood, you broke your body for us so that we could have 
uh, communion with the Father. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.